morning. Guys, welcome to Salt Church. If we haven't met yet, my name is Drake. I'm the director for our college ministry, the Salt Company. Excited that you guys are joining us this morning. Uh, if you want to be proactive, you can go ahead and make your way over to that text, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be camped out in our time together this morning. Uh, and I'm excited for the text. Uh, many scholars, theologians will say that the greatest book in the entire world is the Bible. The greatest letter in that book is the letter to the Romans, and the greatest chapter in that letter is Romans chapter 8. That out of 1,189 chapters in the Bible, Romans 8 is the peak of the mountain. Because Romans 8, it begins with no condemnation, and as we'll see next week, it ends with no separation. And in between is some of the sweetest and most glorious truths in all of the Bible. And so the truth that we're going to be seeing this morning is that in Christ, we have hope. How believers in the room, we have hope. Now that word hope there, that's a pretty common word that we use, but the question on the table this morning is what do you put your hope in? Where are you putting your hope? See, for some of us, you are hoping uh, that your love life begins to resemble the Hallmark movies that are about to flood our screens here as Christmas approaches. For some of you, you're trying to hope in your bank account financial statement that even if you lose your job or even if the economy goes under, you will be okay. For some of us, you're hoping that the political climate either changes or it doesn't change depending on where you land. For some of you, man, it's external from you, okay? And so you're, you're trying to put your hope in how you look, right? And so you go to the mirror every morning and you're like, still got it, it's still there. For others of you, you're just hoping for assurance, assurance for you, for the kids, for the grandkids, that everything will turn out okay, that health will be there, that their life will be fine. The question is, where do you put your hope? I remember coming across a relatively extreme example of where some people put their hope. You see, some people, they don't put their hope in a love story like the Hallmark movies or even how they look. They're putting their hope in these things called billionaire bunkers. Anybody heard of these things? Okay, no. I'm about to explain it. Here you go. Hey, uh, Forbes released an article at the very beginning of the pandemic, and pandemic in like March of uh, 2020, uh, and subsequent articles have come out recently just with all the political and social unrest, uh, basically saying that all of these uh, doctors, celebrities, lawyers, big tech gurus, all these kind of people had one thing in common, that they were all building or refurbishing these extravagant and luxurious underground hideaways to protect themselves. Okay, some of these bunkers are complete with a year's supply of food, swimming pools, bowling alleys, movie theaters, basically forming these underground communities. Okay, and I'm not, I'm not even kidding. Okay, here's actually a picture of some of these underground bunkers. That is literally underground. Okay, uh, in fact, one of the most well-known billionaire bunkers is actually located in Kansas. It was a former uh, missile silo that they renovated into a 15-story underground bunker that was complete with a community swimming pool, a dog walking park, and even a general store. Like These things are legit. The advertisement for these things says that it's an apocalyptic country club. Okay, And if you're curious, you too can be a part of this billionaire bunker community uh, in Kansas by getting a half-floor unit in Kansas, underground, for $1.5 million. Or you can go big time, get to the penthouse for a cool $4 million. 
And there's a few different reactions to these billionaire bunkers. One, you could be like, man, that is a really good investment, okay? That sounds like something I should get involved in. Sweetie, we're getting a bunker for Christmas this year. For others of you, you're like, all right, man, I'm struggling to pay uh, $400 a month in rent an apartment that I share with, you know, four other people. If there's an apocalypse, I'm just like, Jesus, take the wheel, man. I'm ready to bounce. But either way, there are people forking over a significant amount of money and putting their hope and their long-term future in these bunkers should a cataclysmic event occur. Now, why start there? Well, for as silly as that seems to a lot of us, the reality is that every single person in the room this morning puts their hope in something. That when chaos in life ensues, when trials come, when suffering appears, we all gravitate towards anchoring our future in some type of hope. Like nobody is neutral towards hope in life. And so this morning, I want to show you, I want, I want to explain to you through Romans 8, a better hope, a Christian hope, a biblical hope, not a blind and wishful hope like some of these billionaire bunkers, but instead a confident expectation, a rock-solid assurance. In fact, if you want just a biblical definition of hope, I think you can wrap it up in that, a confident expectation. And Paul, what he wants to do is take us up the mountain of Romans 8 and show us how we can have hope in the middle of suffering. Because Paul is basically going to say that trials, difficult circumstances, suffering is inevitable. That suffering is a part of the world and believers in Jesus are not exempt from it. In fact, Jesus would tell his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. That the world is filled with pain and anyone who believes that followers of Jesus should be exempt hasn't read their Bible. Okay, Peter would go on later to say that we shouldn't be surprised at these fiery ordeals as if something strange was happening to us. James 1 talks about how suffering can actually produce more faith in us. The book of 2 Corinthians talks about how when we go through suffering, it actually helps us minister to other people who are suffering. And so Paul, he's talking about real pain and real suffering And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, because Paul knows real pain. And a lot of us in here are going through real pain. But in Christ, we have hope. And we're going to see the ingredients that will allow us to have hope in life, despite difficulties, and how we can have praise in the pain. And so I don't have any like specific points for us this morning. I simply want to walk us through 12 or 13 of the sweetest, most glorious truths in all of Scripture, and I hope that it will be encouraging for us. Sound good? Sound good. All right. Hey, verse 18 is where we're going to start. Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Okay, we already have to stop right there because this is a massive and potentially insulting statement from Paul. Like, it'd be easy to read this like, Paul, brother, you have no idea what I am going through right now. Like, even in a room this size, I know that there are people who could be going through heartbreak right now, who might be dealing with unbelievable insecurity and regret People who might be in the midst of fighting a disease or just lost someone who got done battling this disease or have lost a job or have lost a baby or are struggling to have a baby. And the Apostle Paul has the nerve to say, I don't don't even consider the sufferings in the world when we consider and compare it to the glory that is ahead. But we need to remember who is writing this. We need to remember who the Apostle 
Paul is because Paul was not a stranger to suffering. In other words, like he didn't write this from a cabana on a beach in Bora Bora while sipping on a pina colada saying, you know, the sufferings of this time are not worth. No, like he was probably writing this from a prison cell and he has suffered up until this point in his life more than many of us will experience in our entire lives. Like he was beaten with a whip with nails at the end of it five different times. He was beaten with a rod three different times, so much so that he was permanently disfigured. He was shipwrecked three different times, and he was stoned. And not like the I just smoked something stoned, but like the pelted with rocks type of stoned. And he even spent a quarter of his life in prison. So here's what Paul is doing. He begins to count all of his sufferings, all the hardships that he's going through, all the pain, and he begins to pile it up over here. And he says, when you compare this with the glory that's to come, it's not even worth comparing. He says, for I consider, or I reckon, that's the word there, I reckon and have calculated the cost, and it's not even in the ballpark. You can't even compare the two. So think of some things that aren't worth comparing. It's like, who's the better basketball player? Jonathan Randall or Michael Jordan, okay? The game would be over before John gets his shoes on, let's be honest. Or who's the better chef? Keith Browneyes or Gordon Ramsay, okay? The goat, Gordon's got him beat. Maybe this one will work for you. Qdoba or Cafe Mexicali? Cafe Mex, right? Vastly superior. Colorado State University, I'm just kidding, but (laughs) go Bears though, okay? We're all thinking it. We love CSU. God sees them in their suffering. (laughs) But this is what Paul is saying, is that wherever you are, however you walked in the room this morning, whatever weight it feels like you might be carrying, it is real, it is valid, and Paul will be the first one to mourn with you. And for as difficult as it is for us limited humans to see and to understand, he's saying that when you put our suffering into the light of what's to come, it isn't even worth comparing. As there is a reality to come that makes the suffering here not even worthy to be mentioned in the same conversation as the glory that's to come, right? And so Paul here, he's not trying to minimize our suffering on earth. He's actually trying to maximize the glory that's to come. And what is that glory? Well, he's about to explain it next. Verse 19. Verse 19 says this. For the creation... Creation here, just thinking all the elements in the world and the entire world and beyond. So think uh, anything not human. Think stars, think rocks, think trees, think mountains, think rivers, think animals. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And so Paul here, using some poetic personification, he's saying that the whole world is just waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Or in other words, creation is just waiting for Jesus to come back and to make all things new. And the idea that Paul is getting at, that creation waits with eager longing, has this idea that creation is on its tippy toes, right? Like a loved one waiting for their one to return home at an airport, Or it's like a bride who is waiting for her wedding day. Creation longing for the day that Jesus comes back. Now the question is why? Why would creation be longing for Jesus' return? Well, you're asking the right, right questions this morning. Verse 20 says this. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so in the midst of looking forward towards this glory that is to come, Paul actually points back. Before Paul is going to show us how we can have hope in the midst of suffering, before he gets to the hope, he actually explains the why, the why suffering even exists. And he's saying that the reason that suffering exists, the reason that evil is in this world, the reason that deep inside every person there's this feeling that something isn't right is because we live in a world that was never meant to be this way. That when Paul says creation was subjected to futility, that idea is that the world is fractured. It is frustrated. It's not operating how it should be. And to prove it, Paul actually points back to the very beginning The Garden of Eden, this moment in time where sin entered into the world and it fractured everything. That in the garden with Adam and Eve, that when they sinned, when sin entered into the world, it fractured the whole cosmos. That all of creation is now in a whirlwind and that everything now is in bondage to death and decay. And the point is this is that the reason we have so much sin today, the reason we have so much suffering, so much evil in the world, is because in the garden, it wasn't just Adam who was cursed. It wasn't just Eve who was cursed, but it was the ground. It was creation. It was the entire world. All of it fractured and broken and cursed. That when mankind kicked God out of the reign and rule of their hearts, chaos came in. That hurricanes, tornadoes, natural disasters now exist. That cancer has a place in this world now. That babies are born stillborn. That dementia, heart attacks, diseases, the world is broken. It is fractured. And Paul is giving us a framework here that God did not invent the world to be like this. It wasn't like this in the very beginning. And so Paul is showing us that we are broken. That the world is broken. That everywhere around us is brokenness. But there is a redemption ahead. There is a redemption to us. There is a redemption to creation. That creation is just longing for the day, longing and eagerly waiting to be restored back to Eden, to be restored back to paradise. So some scholars will even say this about the text, is that creation groans. It's eagerly waiting because it's as if creation remembers what Eden was like. It's as if creation remembers what the garden was like and it wants to be restored to it. But you'll notice creation isn't the only thing groaning in this passage, right? Flip over to verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so not only does creation groan, but we ourselves groan as well. And if you're tracking with me, man, you should read some of these verses and you could potentially raise a massive objection. Like, Paul, what are you talking about? Like, the reason he's saying that Paul is saying that we groan inwardly, we being humanity, the reason that we groan inwardly is because we are waiting for our adoption as sons. 
But if you're like me, you're like Paul, brother, you just talked about it a few verses earlier in verses 14 through 17, how we have already been adopted, that adoption happens in an instant when Christ saves us. And so why is, why is Paul saying here that we are still waiting for the day when we are adopted? Well, here's Paul's point. He's not saying that you aren't adopted. He's saying that we haven't experienced it fully that we haven't experienced the full nature of our adoption. And so Paul is trying to get us to see that, yes, we have been justified. Yes, we have been declared righteous. Yes, the Holy Spirit is indwelling with us, but you and I still live in a fallen world. That's why theologians will call the place that we live in now the already, but not yet. That we have already been saved by Christ. We've already experienced some of these first fruits of what it means to be adopted into his family. And yet, we are still waiting for the day that Jesus returns and makes all things new, brings him back to himself. And there's something about this current suffering that creation is in, that you and I are in, that we cannot miss. And it all has to do with pregnant moms. Did you notice the one illustration that Paul used? Labor pains. Okay? I have never been pregnant, nor will I be, ever. But we do, my wife and I do have a five-month-old son. And I can remember, man, pregnancy starts off really fun, right? You are rocking the bump. You're taking pictures with the bump. You have photo shoots with the bump. People are celebrating you. You have uh, celebrations. Things are going awesome. I remember when people were asking Brittany and I how pregnancy is going, I would always say, I feel great. Thank you for asking. Yes. But here's what I learned five months ago. That pushing a small child through a small hole, relatively painful. For every woman in here, God bless you. It is going to be painful. But here's what's true about labor pains that I learned five months ago. Is that one, they are temporary, okay? Really easy for the guys in the room to say, but they are temporary. They will not last forever. And the second thing is that it is a different kind of pain. It is a pain that produces life. And so for as helpless as I was in the delivery room on May 20th, uh, you know what I didn't do? was while Brittany was in some of the deepest pain of her life, while she was yelling, why did you do this to me? I did not take a picture, a selfie with her, saying, hey, this is for the grandkids, babe. No. Like, I may be a man, but I have been sanctified. But you better believe that within a minute of the pain coming to an end and Tatum coming, we took pictures. We were joyful. And it was worth it. Because the joy of holding our baby boy far outweighed the pain of childbirth. That pain can't even compare to the joy of new life. And so labor pains, they are temporary, but they are filled with hope. And for us, every time we experience pain, we are reminded that we aren't home yet. That every diagnosis, every painful moment, every injustice, every casket that is put into the ground and every reality of living in a broken world are the signals, are the labor pains that are pointing like a flashlight to new life to come that is just around the corner. When there's going to come a day when we are fully adopted, there will come a day when creation is restored and makes all things new. There will come a day when everything will be right again. And we can see in this text one of the reasons we can have hope. Because all of the suffering that we experience on this earth, not only was it never meant to be this way, 
But one day it's not going to be this way. That the curse will be undone. It will be undone. The curse will be reversed. And so Paul is trying to get our hearts and eyes off of our present sufferings and onto the glorious reality that is to wait. That all of the pain, all of the suffering, it will be undone. Revelation 21 says that our tears will be wiped away one day. That heaven will be filled with perfect peace and perfect joy. No more death. Hospitals will be no more. Graveyards won't exist anymore. Greeley will smell good again. That it may be cloudy now, but one day the sun will shine. And so here is your assurance, friends. Is that not one second of your suffering is wasted. Not one thing happens in this life that the goodness of God will not transform into glory. That the world may groan right now, we may groan right now, but we can have hope in suffering because glory is coming. The king is coming back, and his kingdom will reign and rule on this earth again. Glory is coming. Let's keep moving. Verse 26. Verse 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Okay, we won't spend uh, much time here, but man, I love this. Like You can so clearly see the heart of God here, where God is illustrating that not only am I the type of God that is going to give my life for you on the cross, but I'm also the type of God that is going to give my spirit to you while you wait. And so notice what Paul is doing in this passage, is he went all the way to the past, talking about the very beginning where sin entered into the world, and then he goes all the way to the future of the glory that is to come for us. And so we have the deep past and the deep future. And here we have this huge middle section where we are right now. And the greatest news for us, perhaps the greatest source of our hope as believers, is that we have a God who is with us, who intercedes for us, and who helps us in our weaknesses. J.D. Greer says it like this, is that the spirit inside of you is even better than Jesus beside you. And that's what we have. That's what this text is showing us, that the Spirit will lead you and help you. That's why like, people say it all the time, like God will never give you more than you can handle. Yes, he will. Yes, he will. He will put you in situations that are overwhelming for you all the time, where you get to the end of yourself and think, man, I don't, I don't even know what to do. Like, I, I don't know what to do with my financial situation. I don't know where I'll be next year. God, I don't know if this sickness is ever going to go away. God, I don't know if I'll ever be able to have a baby. God, I don't know if I'll ever feel joyful again. I don't know what to do. And the beauty is that God has given us a helper who, as verse 26 says, he intercedes for us. That just carries the idea that he is pleading on our behalf with groanings too deep for words. And in the next verse, we see that this helper, the Holy Spirit, intercedes for us according to the will of God, that the Holy Spirit is our helper who will make us mature, complete, and lacking in nothing. And so I know for me, my time in college, uh, this time that was supposed to be the greatest years of my life, 
Um, it didn't start off too hot, okay? Sound, like uh, Disappointments and trials were the soundtrack of my life. I was a Taylor Swift album, basically. Like baseball for me, like the thing that defined me more than anything, suddenly gone. All of my friends getting drafted, doing the dream that I wanted to do, and it slipped out of my hands. Uh, I had a girlfriend from high school, uh, you know, the one that you tried to bring in to college with you. Pretty low percentage shot, I'll just be honest, especially college students in the, world, in the room. We'll get to that one day. But that ended brutally. My parents were going through a divorce at the time. My friend group completely split up. Like I did not leave my dorm room for months at a time except for going to class. Like I just got in a situation my junior year of college where I felt like God was stonewalling every single dream that I ever had, where I felt like God was just hemming me in. And I got to a place where I hit rock bottom. And I would just go on runs in Ames, Iowa, and I would just like rage. I can't imagine what people were thinking if they just like saw from their windows, but I would just like rage. And I was so angry. I was like, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand why you're putting me through this. Honestly, I'm questioning your goodness. I have doubts about you and in my faith, just because my mom says it's true. I don't know if I believe this anymore. And what was happening was I hit rock bottom. My spirit was absolutely crushed. But that's when God's spirit finally came into my life. Because the only place that you can look when you hit rock bottom is up. And I learned what so many people throughout history have learned is that you'll never know Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. That God gave me difficulties in my life to, de- to expose some deficiencies, some weaknesses in my life, because that's when the Holy Spirit can really start to go to work in your life. One pastor says it like this, that if dependency on God is the goal, then weakness is to our advantage. If dependency is the goal, then weakness in, is the advantage. And so the college student Drake would have never chosen those trials. But now I'd never trade them. Because at the time, I thought they were evidence that God was against me, when in reality, it was actually evidence that he was for me, and he was laying out a foundation in my life that was built on him that was absolutely unshakable. It was in my rock bottom. It was in my weakest moments that Christ looked more beautiful than ever to me, that I saw God in ways I never would have if I was the one writing the script of my own life. Like the Spirit of God did more work in and through me in one year than in the rest of my life combined. He helps us in our weaknesses. We have a helper who helps us in our hurts. So verse 28, verse 28, it's our last section that we'll be looking at. It says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Okay, there's one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, that God will work out all things for your good. But we have to see this. This is a conditional statement. Okay, it is conditioned for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. And so this is not a blanket statement for all people. This is a hope for God's people. And Paul just starts it off by saying, we know, like we know this. This is a matter of fact statement. Like just like gravity pulls us down, just like the sun gives us heat, just like the grass is green and the Cowboys will never win another Super Bowl, we can be assured of 
We can be confident in that God works all things together for good, that he is actively and intimately working in every aspect of your life. And so we have to think about this. Like this is a fundamental difference between the God of Christianity and every other belief system, that we have a God who is transcendent. He is above all and separated from everything. All right, we sing about it often. God, you have no rival, you have no equal, that we have a God who is so far above humanity and everything that he created that he stands alone. He is transcendent. And yet this transcendent God in his love and his mercy feels compelled to humanity. The only thing in creation that doesn't constantly worship him but he feels compelled to enter into the story in our lives to bring about his glory and our greatest good. Like that is an unbelievable truth to hold on to. And here's the reality is that that good that he is working out is much better than the worldly wisdom of everything happens for a reason or Hakuna Matata, because underneath this verse is something much greater, a greater good. And Paul says that we know this good, we can have hope in this good, and we can be so assured of the good that is to come that the joy that we have does not stay locked up in the future, but it actually comes rolling back into the present, even in this painful moment. And so let me give you an example. Working out. What are you doing when you are working out? You are putting your muscles in crisis. You are putting your muscles in pain. And yet what is happening? is that you are so assured that the painful moment is going to produce a desired outcome in you, that you're going to look good with your shirt off, that you'll have ab for days, whatever it is. But you're so confident of that, that the joy of the desired future doesn't stay locked up in the future, but it comes cascading back into this moment. And so you hear guys at the gym like, oh yeah, this burn is so good, right? Like, no, it's not. It hurts. But you are so assured that it's producing a good in you that you have joy even now in the midst of the pain. And so here's how it applies to us as believers who are going through pain and suffering. And you have to hear this. Is that we can call a tragedy a tragedy and we can call pain pain. And I don't have to call that good. But I can rejoice in the middle of it because that pain has the potential to produce something good in me. That we can praise God in the pain because we know that our problems have the potential to produce something positive in us. That our pain actually has potential. And you go, what is it? What is that potential? What is that good that Paul is talking about? He's going to tell us in verse 29. And before we even get there, we need to see that Paul, he's not talking about a general good. He's talking about a very specific good. And he says it in verse 29. He says, for those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed, this is it, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so what's the end goal? What's the good that Paul is talking about? That we would be conformed into the image of Jesus. That we would look more and more and more like Jesus. The best way I know how to illustrate this uh, is with the story of Michelangelo, uh, not the turtle cartoon character, but like the sculptor uh, who was alive in the 1500s. You're probably familiar with his most famous work, uh, the Statue of David. I believe we might have a picture of that. 
And he was asked this question. He was, he was asked, how did you create such a beautiful monument? Like, how did you do it? How did you take a block of marble and turn it into this masterpiece? And he said, it was easy. I took this block of marble and I just chipped away everything that didn't look like David. Simple, <laughs> profound even. But he said, I had a big piece of marble and I just chipped away everything that did not look like David. And here's the reality, church, is that this is actually what happens in the life of the believer. That God is taking the statue called you and he is chipping away at everything in your life that does not look like Jesus. He is conforming you to look more and more like Jesus. And oftentimes it is through pain of how he does it. And he will do whatever he needs to do to make that happen because ultimately that is your ultimate good. That is your greatest good in life. And it may not feel good in the moment. It may feel painful being chiseled away at. But in 100 years, in 200 years, in 20 billion years, that pain won't even be a memory. And so you need to hear this, is that God may not change your circumstance. you got to hear that this morning. God may not change your circumstance, but he sure can change you in the midst of those circumstances. And so for the Christian in the room, there is no suffering, no pain, no hardships that is meaningless. Everything is meaningful. And he keeps going in verse 29 again. We'll go back to it. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. You guys need to see this. God's greatest aim is not our happiness, but our holiness. Like life can be incredibly hard, but in the disappointments, the trials, the brokenness, the hurts, the frustrations, the longings, we have a God who is providentially at work in all of our lives. And so let me tell you this, is that those words foreknew and predestined, um, those can be some big, scary words, right? But in reality is that those can actually be really encouraging words for you. Because they're talking about a God who is before all things, who is better than all things, and who reigns above all things. That he is better and that he is sovereign. And the reality is is that that's really good news. Because if God is not sovereign, then we are not secure. Like if you could do something to be saved, then that means that you could do something in order to lose your salvation. And let me tell you guys, I need God to be sovereign in my life because it is the only thing that keeps me secure in the kingdom of God. That the God who knew you before all time began, that the God who called you before all time began, and the God who loved you before all time began, that same God will not let you slip through his fingers. He is going to finish what he started in you. And that is meant to give you hope. And that's a lot of theological words. That's a lot of theological statements. But let me just say maybe more of a pastoral word from some of these verses. Because I know, like I said, in a room this size... There are things that are going on underneath some of the surfaces that feels unbelievably heavy. It feels like you can't catch your breath. And I don't just want to throw some verses at you and say, good luck, you got it. But here's what I'd love for you to see. Is that you don't have to call pain and hardships good, but you can call Jesus good. Is that you may not understand in the moment the work and the hand of God 
but you can trust the heart of God. You can have hope and praise God in the midst of pain to the degree that you have confidence in his heart. And you can have deep hope when you have a deep trust in the heart of God. So let me just close with this. A lot of you may be thinking, man, is this, is this all just wishful thinking? Like, are you just saying this because you hope that it's going to be true? No, I'm saying you can trust God to lead you through pain. Why? Because he's already done it before. That he so loved the world that he sent his son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but should have everlasting life. That God stepped into our pain. That he entered into suffering and is with us in it. That suffering is hard but we have a God whose love is so wrapped up in us that he couldn't bear to keep himself at a distance. That Jesus walked through the valley of the shadow of death. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. That he who was the author of life took on death and a death that put him in the grave and in the tomb for three days. But in his pain, in his suffering, all of that stopped three days later when he rose again. But it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, that God was able to use the worst pain, the most horrific suffering possible to allow us to receive life in him. And so the worst day in human history actually produced the greatest good in all of history. And so the reality is we can hope in the middle of our suffering because the source of our hope, yes, it is looking forward to the new creation, but not just that, it's also looking back towards the cross. That we don't just have a God who walked the road before us, but he also walks the road beside us. That he always has and that he always will. That's the hope that Romans 8 wants to get, not just into your head, but into your heart. We have the greatest hope in the entire world. A living hope, a better hope, a Christian hope. That is what you can leave the room today with. Jesus Christ, we can have hope in him because he is reigning and ruling on the throne of eternity and he's not stepping off anytime soon. He will never step off because he's good and he's glorious and he will see you to the end. That's the hope that we can have in church. Let me pray for us. Lord, you are so good and we come to you every single week to read from your word, to sing songs, proclaiming truth about you from your word. And we do it because our hearts, our minds can get so clouded by what we go through throughout the entire week that we don't have to just talk about suffering today and know it in a theological way, but we can actually experience it on a weekly basis, that the world is not as it should be, that there is something about this worth that this world that it was not intended to be like this and we can feel it and we can know it and we come here every single sunday to gather together to lift our eyes above the clouds or to see what you might be doing in us and through us and in the world lord we know that at any given moment there are thousands of possibilities thousands of things that you may be doing and we may be just aware of a handful of them but Lord, would you help us to lift our eyes even today? Would you help us to get our hearts to a place where we can see you? Yes, pain is difficult. Yes, trials are hard, but you are good and you are beautiful. And Lord, we can trust you. We can even trust Paul, but we can trust you 
when you talk about hardships, Lord, because we know that you have walked the road before us, that you went to the, to the cross, you had to deal with the worst suffering in the entire world, separation from the Father. The Father turned his face away from you so that we can cry out as children, Abba, Father, and that you would hear us and that you would see us and that you can be with us. The greatest news in the entire world is that Good Friday did not stop with Good Friday, but it went to Sunday, the resurrection, and we can trust in you with that. And so, Lord, even as we sing these songs, would you help our hearts? Would you help our hearts to see you? Would you help our eyes to lift towards you? Would you help us loosen the things in this world and lift our gaze to you? Lord, we love you and we trust you. In your name we pray. Amen.